evidently had unshakable faith in the ultimate triumph of right. Hello and welcome back to the Royal Melbourne Hospital Education Series. This is part two of our two-part special on sepsis. In this part, we discuss management. We enjoyed by infectious diseases extraordinaire, uh, Associate Professor Karen Thursky and ICU wonder kid, Dr. James Anstey. Welcome back to the two of you. Thank you. Thank you. Karen, I want to start with you and I want to start talking about antibiotics. What do you think stops patients getting antibiotics in a timely fashion? We've done a lot of work on this actually and part of the way we looked at it was actually to map the flow of the patient through the hospital, either through outpatients or in our case at PEDIMAC through the medical day unit or chemotherapy day unit or, or in hospitals with EDs, what actually happens. And so one can imagine that there are many structural and process things that will impact on that patient getting that first dose of intravenous antibiotics. Obviously, the first thing is that there needs to be recognition that the patient actually has got sepsis in the first place. And I think we discussed that very well in the last podcast about why that will lead to definite delays. The second thing is that the patient needs to have a cannula in and that may well be reasonably obvious in, in the inpatient area where there are residents around. But often after hours there are competing priorities and they may not prioritise that that patient may need to be cannulated. And then it falls to other people and in particular it may well be the MET team but we should actually be upskilling nursing staff around the hospital and in the case of haematology patients in particular, upskilling uh, nurses in the ED to be able to access their central lines, which has often been a known barrier. The other thing which I think has become increasingly important in recognising this so-called cryptic shock where they're normotensive and hyperperfused are some of the limitations of the current emergency department triage categorisation. So we have CAT 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. And to be a CAT 2 where you're seen and assessed within 10 minutes, you actually need to meet particular criteria, and that criteria is that they need to be hypotensive. So one can imagine that if the patient's perhaps normotensive, they may be categorised as Category 3. It is almost impossible for that patient to be assessed and have the IV antibiotics within 30 or even 60 minutes. Then there are practices which are very common, and that is the competing priorities of all those people that need to care for the patient. So while the, we know that the clinicians understand that time to first dose is very important, is quite a common process that the patient's written it up on the chart and off they go for their chest x-ray in the, in the middle of it or someone decides that, no, they have to get a urine test before the antibiotics. In the literature, really, the main test that needs to be done for microbiology is a blood culture and that's the first priority. Other tests like chest x-rays, urine, faecal swabs, etc., can be done after that first dose of antibiotic. On the flip side, can I ask, when can you safely not give antibiotics in a patient with fever and suspected sepsis? It comes back to your clinical assessment and your clinical acumen about how likely that you think that the patient's going to deteriorate quickly, and we covered that last time. So there are some patients, particularly immunocompromised patients and neutropenic patients, where really one would tend to err on the side of caution rather than actually delay. I might add that occasionally in intensive care we have patients who have what might be considered in another circumstance to be a fever with a very septic response, but they might have another good explanation for it, such as severe pancreatitis or burns. And those patients, we, depending exactly on how they were going on and their stability, we might just watch them. But that's in a very different setting from the ward, obviously. 
back onto antibiotics now. I was always told that flucloxacillin and gentamicin are the mainstays of management in the patient with septic shock. Firstly, what is the role of gentamicin in this ototoxic-fearing world, Karen? Interestingly, gentamicin and the aminoglycosides play quite an important role, actually, because we know that where we see emerging resistance, particularly with antibiotics like keftriaxone, in our extended spectrum beta-lactamases and some of our other pathogens, these are often remain aminoglycoside susceptible. But the key thing, and I try and make my point when I talk about antibiotics, one needs to understand how an antibiotic works so that we can give the best antibiotic. Aminoglycosides are very important because of their peak concentration, their post-antibiotic killing effect, and they are very important in that rapid killing of the bacteria in the bloodstream when they're given. They can be given as a stat dose. It's interesting also when you educate medical and nursing staff about which antibiotics to give and when. Because of the attributable mortality with gram-negative pathogens, particularly Klebsiella, which I talked about last time, it is very important to administer the antibiotic with good gram-negative activity first. We do see, obviously, the use of Piprocil and Tazobactam increasing nationally in Australia. It is, at least in our National Antimicrobial Prescribing Survey, one of the top three most commonly prescribed antibiotics. And in particular, I think Royal Melbourne it is the most common antibiotic prescribed now. So Andrew Brett is correct in his observations. There are some advantages in using the extended spectrum beta-lactamases, A, because particularly in patients with nephrotoxicity or risk of nephrotoxicity or they have known renal impairment or they have other reasons or other contraindications for gentamicin, you do have the advantage of having good gram-negative coverage with these extended-spectrum agents as well as the associated gram-positive and anaerobic coverage, which is why it has become, I guess, one of the core antibiotics used with severe sepsis in the intensive care unit and also in the haematology patients. When do you consider vancomycin in the septic patient, given that it doesn't have the greatest killing activity of all gram-positive coverage? No, it doesn't. So putting my immunocompromised hat on, there's be, there's plenty of studies that show that there is no advantage of adding in vancomycin at the start of treatment of neutropenic fever within 72 hours, in fact. And the main indications for adding in vancomycin up front is the requirement that that patient is known to be colonised with MRSA or has got a positive line infection. I think the same applies to the community where if there is an infection that is likely to be related to staph, such as a rapidly progressive cellulitis or very severe pneumonia, and you need to think about community-acquired MRSA, the rate of that is, I guess, around about 10 or 15% in some areas around Melbourne. So we do definitely consider that, and I know that in the intensive care unit that certainly comes into play with patients that come up into the unit severe hospital-acquired pneumonia or severe community-acquired pneumonia where they're considering that to be a possibility. James, can I ask about vancomycin? It's used in the intensive care unit and in the post-operative patient in particular. When are you guys reaching for it? So in the post-operative patient, we would consider using it for patients who've been hospitalised for a period leading up to their operation and uh, therefore more likely to be colonised with MRSA. Apart from that, we would tend to hold off on vancomycin unless someone were particularly unwell, they'd been hospitalised for a period of time and they were going into septic shock. Our general approach is 
in those patients if we do start it to quickly reassess within the first 48 hours and cease it if cultures are negative. But in the setting of someone who's been hospitalised, has an indwelling line, who has gone into a shock state, we would consider it. But as I say, stop it quite early. Moving on to the ridiculous big guns, Karen, linazolid, daptomycin, colistin, what are their indications for use in septic patients? There really aren't that many current indications for use. There really needs to be an extraordinary circumstance to consider them up front. And it really comes down to the pathogen, patient allergies, prior colonisation. We talked last time about the Van A issue where daptomycin may be considered first line rather than vancomycin as the additional gram-positive coverage in sepsis. And we are very fortunate that we don't have those rates of multi-resistance that necessitates that approach. Putting your antimicrobial stewardship hat on for a second there, Karen, are we going to see more resistance then, given that we do bandy around Piperacillin and Tazobactam so often? Romulvin actually does very well in terms of its appropriateness of use when we undertake our annual point prevalence survey. So we are sitting around about 85% appropriateness. We are one of the lowest keftriaxone users in the country, where keftriaxone is often the most common antibiotic used, and that we consider to be more of a target for stewardship. However, we do know that there are some groups around the hospital that are really moving towards a lot of piperacil and tazobactam use, and that's our friends, the surgeons. The plastic surgeons and the trauma surgeons tend to be moving to using piperacil and tazobactam. I think that is one area where I think we can improve its, its indications. Moving on to meropenem and vancomycin, which is, I feel, almost becoming a reflex in the intensive care unit. In fact, one of my colleagues the other day referred to it as vancopenem. Karen, do you feel we're overusing this combination? We do three times a week rounds with our ICU here, and I have to say our impression is that they consider the use of their antibiotics quite carefully. And most of the time, of course, it is a little bit physician-dependent as who will start it off, but my impression is that they really think about it and often it has had some ID or stewardship oversight for its appropriateness. And again, going back to our surveys that we do, our ICU is a very thoughtful unit in terms of how they use their antibiotics. There's always room to improve existing protocols which have actually driven some of its use. So, for example, there I think we need to redo the hospital-associated pneumonia protocol where vancomycin was sort of reflexly added with piperacillin and tazobactam, for example, and many of the clinicians won't do that now. And I think that needs to be reflected in some of the protocols. And we do know that protocols and guidelines will absolutely influence how people prescribe. James, vancopenum. Vancopenem, I think meropenem and vancomycin are things that are justified and justifiable in a certain patient group, but we certainly wouldn't use them in everyone. So I think the patients we would consider using them in are the, the patient who's been hospitalised for a period of time who then develops septic shock and is either particularly unwell or is colonised by bugs that are showing signs or have been proven to be resistant to things such as piperacillin and tazobactam. So we wouldn't use meropenem without reflecting on it first. It certainly has a role in the hospitalised patient who's particularly unwell. In patients with community-acquired sepsis, it would be unusual for us to reach for that in the first instance, with exceptions perhaps of, for example, patients who've recently returned from Asia with urinary tract infections, for example. 
But it's all a question of really the most likely organism in the patient and coming up with the most appropriate antibiotic. Meropenem's not normally required in the community-acquired septic shock. And of course, the fundamental principle for all antibiotic use, and this applies to the natural clinical standards which were released for antimicrobial stewardship last year, you must review your prescribing at 24 to 48 hours. And there needs to be a conscious decision by the team to de-escalate if you're not flagging resistant pathogens. Karen, can I ask a question about that? Something that uh, I have antimicrobial resistance anxiety. And one thing that often worries me is the patient who may or may not be septic in the emergency department. And as a medical registrar overnight, you give them a single dose of keftriaxone or the emergency department does. What is the chances of developing resistance from those sort of interactions with a fairly hard-going antibiotic? I think there, there is still emerging evidence exactly what sort of antibiotic pressure. There's plenty of studies showing that exposure to antibiotics will increase resistance of their generation kephosporins, particularly with things like pseudomonas. I can't answer you, although we know that ecologically there are plenty of studies that show that hospitals with very high usage of particular antibiotics do have high rates of resistance. James, let's move on to fluids. Uh, Hartman's seemingly is becoming the juice du jour for the septic patient. Can you outline what the evidence is where Hartman sits over normal saline? It's an interesting question because normal saline is becoming increasingly unpopular in the critical care world and has been probably for the last 10 or 15 years, although it's taking time for that information to or that sentiment to disseminate elsewhere in, in the hospital. So normal saline, I suppose the background of it is this is a fluid that was developed in the 1830s and is one of the few things to have survived that long in medicine in a pretty similar format to its initial design. Its initial calculation was probably a miscalculation, so it's hyperosmolar. It has an osmolality somewhere between 300 and 310 milliosmoles per litre, which is hypertonic. And particularly, it has a very large chloride load. So we don't consider it a balanced crystalloid solution at all. It's been compared recently in a study at the Austin, quite a clever study, where they got rid of chloride-rich solutions in every form and made them difficult to prescribe for a six-month period and compared a number of outcomes, including renal failure in those patients. What they found was that in the period in which they got rid of high-chloride solutions, including normal saline and uh, 4% albumin, and they replaced those with things such as Hartman's and Plasmalite, they saw a, quite a significant decrease in the amount of renal failure requiring renal replacement therapy. It went down from about 10 to 7% from memory, and it was, that was significant. So this was a before-after study and, I suppose, confounded potentially by the time factor. And so this is being reassessed by the Australian New Zealand Clinical Trials Group at the moment in what's the split trial. But we don't like particularly giving a lot of normal saline nowadays. It produces, amongst other things, metabolic acidosis from all the chloride, it may be associated with more renal failure, but that needs to be proven conclusively. And Hartman's is attractive apart from being a balanced solution in the fact that it contains all that lactate. And lactate's probably quite a good fuel for the stressed organism. We know that patients with a septic myocardial depression who are given lactate, that lactate is a beautiful fuel for the heart that's not performing well. So there's some physiological sense as well, I think, in using Hartman's rather than normal saline as a resuscitation fluid. The other option, of course, is plasmalite, which is taking off a little bit, which doesn't actually have lactate in it, that has acetate and gluconate as the other anions. Karen, in the sepsis pathway, what fluid is recommended for patients as initial resuscitation? 
So for all the reasons outlined very well by James, we have the Hartmans actually. And in fact at Peter Mac we replaced all resuscitation trolleys with Hartmans rather than normal saline now. Indications for not using Hartmans, James? Look, some intensivists have looked closely at the results from the SAFE study, which was the big study looking at normal saline versus albumin, 4% albumin as, as a resuscitation fluid, a big study done in Australian ICUs some years ago now. And the subgroup of patients with septic shock who were given 4% albumin as their resuscitation fluid actually seemed to do slightly better than those given normal saline. So some intensivists do like using 4% albumin as a resuscitation fluid, particularly in the first day. That might be one indication where you could consider using it. But personally, I do like Hartman's. When would you still reach for normal saline? Potentially the patient who's had a lot of vomiting before coming in and had a metabolic alkalosis on arrival, we might consider it. In head-injured patients, in patients in whom we don't want their sodium going south, Hartman's has a sodium that's close to 140. Normal saline has a sodium of 150 or 153, depending on the formulation. So you might be able to justify giving saline in the head injured patient. We certainly wouldn't use Albamex in those ones in the head injured patient because it probably is associated with worse cognitive outcomes. When are you personally reaching for the concentrated albumin? Concentrated albumin, so 20%. I would use that occasionally in patients in whom I don't want to give large amounts of volume. It may be a solution in those patients, for example, with a lot of peripheral edema. But whether it actually is a cost-effective and sensible solution to that problem, I'm not sure. A lot of these patients have leaky capillaries, and we give them Albamex, hoping that that albumin is going to remain intravascularly. In fact, it may not last that much longer. I want to share with the audience that great conversation we're having off-air about over-resuscitation with fluids and renal impairment. Karen, do you want to comment on that and the sepsis pathway in terms of do we over-resuscitate with fluids? In our workup leading to what we should do in the sepsis pathway, we looked at international guidelines. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign actually advocates 30 mils per kilogram. This is roundly considered too high to be given at a ward level. So we've taken a fairly cautious approach in terms of what we're using in our pathway. We've taken a weight-based approach to that where we sort of start off with one, one litre, one and a half or two litres based on weight. It comes out around 20 mils per kilo or just under. But really making sure that people are aware that if they're not improving with regards to their hemodynamic status, that they're referred to ICU early for vasopressors, which is a real issue. James, are we then using vasopressors too late? Personally, I do think that, as Karen just said, if patients are not responding to a litre or so of fluid resuscitation within the first few hours, they should be referred to us at least for consideration. The question is then whether we would put them on vasopressors and take them to ICU. And that decision depends very much on how they're going, their hemodynamic instability or not, and whether their lactate is starting to improve, whether they're still making urine or not. These are all the considerations. I think giving lots and lots of fluid over the first day or so, although it's, it's an attractive way in the short term of improving the blood pressure, as we were saying before, the treatment for vasodilatation or vasoplegia is really an amount of fluid, but then vasopressors. A lot of fluid resuscitation can probably lead to worse renal outcomes in terms of congestion. There's some good data demonstrating that that's come out recently. So I think if patients are not responding to a couple of litres of, say, Hartman's over the first four to six hours, then they should be considered for intensive care. 
we commonly see this old chest done in general medicine. We have the patient who is not for ICU yet, uh, peripherally vasodilated and septic, intravascularly dry but extravascularly wet. We do this old album with the frizomide chaser. Any opinions on that? Any evidence for it at all? I think in a way we're probably buffing numbers and we may not be achieving anything meaningful with that. Albumin with the frusamide chaser. I think patients sometimes are easier to manage when they are making urine rather than very oliguric, but that's the only benefit perhaps of giving the frusamide. It's probably not associated with any marked improvement in renal function at all, except perhaps if you stop patients becoming massively fluid overloaded by the mechanism we were just talking about. Karen, can I talk about uh, what are your opinions on late referrals to the intensive care units? Do we refer too late in septic patients? Traditionally, yes, I think that's definitely been the case. Bringing in process-driven management like sepsis pathways can protocolise that much earlier. And at least in the pathway that I've implemented at PETAMAC and the one that's about to be implemented in our cancer service here, it's quite protocolised. So if they aren't responding to that first fluid bolus, then they will be referred. And in actual fact, our ICU is, is very good at coming to assess the patient. It's really about them knowing about the patient. They may not be suitable immediately, but they can at least plan at their end if they do need to go up. I want to move on to the second paper for discussion in our two-part special, and this comes from the Intensive Care National Audit and Research Centre from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. This is the paper by Mount Seattle and was published on the April 2nd edition of the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. The title of the paper is Trial of Early Goal-Directed Therapy in Septic Shock. Karen, what is early goal-directed therapy in sepsis? Early goal-directed therapy of sepsis was really a proof of concept published in a single-centre study by Rivers. It was published in the New England where there was a protocolised delivery of sepsis resuscitation based on physiological parameters. The trouble was that they wanted a central line and central venous oxygen monitoring to do that. So while the idea was to tightly control the elements of sepsis resuscitation in that way, this study and there have been a couple of other studies looking at the same thing, have attempted to validate whether you need that amount of tight physiological assessment during that early six hours. And I guess this paper, which was implemented as a randomised study across the UK, really showed that using good sepsis resuscitation via clinical guidelines probably had similar outcomes or same outcomes as to using early goal-directed therapy. There are a couple of important points to make. Patients were randomised after their first dose of antibiotics, so every patient had already had their first dose of antibiotics, so I think that's important in terms of what we know about early antibiotic therapy and outcomes. And the other important thing to note, I guess, was really looking at 90-day mortality and even the health economics of the two approaches where there was no benefit of of having a more rigorous approach in the first six hours. But James might want to comment more on. So I think the elements of early resuscitation with adequate antibiotics, so correct or most appropriate antibiotics given early and a certain amount of volume resuscitation given early, those elements have become pretty well ingrained in treatment algorithms. And what these studies were looking at was, as Karen was saying, the question of whether guiding resuscitation using a central venous oxygen saturation actually added anything to the process. So that's what this study looked at in addition to the two others that have been published within the last 12 months as well. So this is the English version. There was an American version called Prowess, led by Derek Angus, an important American intensivist, and then the ARISE trial in Australia. 
And they all looked at the same question, should we resuscitate patients with uh, central venous line continuously measuring central venous oxygen saturations and pushing them up if they're not coming up with fluids and antibiotics within a short space of time? Now, to do this, you need to understand a little bit about what a central venous oxygen saturation actually means. So a normal number is probably around the 65 to 70% saturation of oxygen. That's the oxygen returning to your right heart after it's been around the circulation. So if, for example, you were to go running down the street and we measure that number, that number would go down to 65, maybe 40, 35% if you really pushed yourself because you're consuming a lot more oxygen. So it's a question of how much is left in the circulation when, it re- when blood returns to your right heart. Now, one of the problems with this as a number is patients can be extremely unwell with septic shock and actually have an elevated mixed venous oxygen saturation. Some of the sickest patients I've seen with septic shock have had a number up to 80%. Using this as a marker or guide to resuscitation efforts probably is not that logical when you think about it. Why can that number be elevated or even normal in patients who are very unwell? Because there's a lot of shunting in the tissues of blood. The the oxygen's not being taken up by tissues. So resuscitating to this as an endpoint, probably in retrospect, and this has been demonstrated by these studies, doesn't make a lot of physiological sense. It involves pushing patients harder, giving them dobutamine to make their heart pump harder if you haven't achieved that oxygen central venous saturation, and also giving them blood transfusions which is potentially harmful as well. And this study looked not just at the outcomes, but the economic rationale for that. And they've proven that it's likely to be a little bit more expensive and of no benefit. So no great change ultimately to how we practice in the intensive care unit as a consequence of these three trials? Well, we've not been resuscitating using that as an endpoint really at all. Anyway, I don't know any units outside of the trial that we're using that as an endpoint. I think we still, in resuscitating patients with septic shock, we, we use those endpoints we talked about before. So there's endpoints of skin perfusion, lactate coming down, a patient making urine, and those are logical endpoints to use. Does that mean you would never use dobutamine in a patient who is in septic shock? Sometimes we still would but that would depend on their response to other measures to try to improve their circulation. Karen, some final words on both early goal-directed therapy and sepsis and, more importantly, before a patient gets to the intensive care unit, the the sepsis pathway and management of those patients. So my experience over the last couple of years in what I think works is, first of all, to empower the nursing staff, empower the nursing staff to assess the patient, make a judgment, hand that over using the ISBAR to the treating team the treating team to come and assess the patient quickly and do all the things that need to be done, particularly in the first 30 minutes, get the cannula in, get the blood cultures, venous blood lactate, get the first dose of antibiotic in, particularly the one with the gram-negative cover, fluid resuscitate the patient, notify the consultant that the patient's actually unwell and refer early to ICU. These are the core principles. There are other things that must always be considered that need to be thought about before the patient goes down this pathway. For example, in a haematology oncology and in the aged care population, is it appropriate for this sort of active management? Consider whether or not this sort of resuscitation is appropriate. And then overlying all of that, whether or not the patient meets MET criteria, which tends to sort of take over. But at least at PEDIMAC, even our MET team uses the pathway. So at all points, it is the same quality of care that occurs for that patient, and I think that is what will improve their outcome. Physicianly approaches to complex problems. I'm not convincing either of you that uh, the physician way is anything but the right way. On that note, I want to finish and 
thank the two of you for enlightening discussion. I also would like to thank you, Anna Jow, for her editing and recording, Associate Professor Peter Morley and Lynn Denby from the Medical Education Unit for their support, and to Michael Cleland, Jess Hedger, David Gay, and Hamish Lewis for their support as well. A final plug to the musician who supplies us with those funky beats, uh, Neff the Sublime Supine. You may hear a little bit more coming up. And coming up in our next podcast, we chat with Nersh about pneumonia. And don't miss Andrew Brett on the difficulties of C. diff. That's all for us. Thank you. <laughs>